Hello friends, welcome back to the Court of Owlets. I'm V, and today I am without my wonderful co-hosts. That's right, this is a hijack episode. Well, kind of. If you're new around here, a hijack episode usually involves one of the co-hosts running off with the episode and doing whatever they want. Typically this means a rant, comic news, or a special comic that piqued only their interest, or even some sort of TV series or film. In this particular instance, it's a little bit strange because I only found out a couple days ago that I was doing this and didn't really have any time to prepare, so I haven't put together a top 10 list of horror comics or something that I could get away with without my co-hosts, as they both hate horror. However, <laughs> given the nature of this particular episode, I think what we're going to do is focus more on the comics that came out this week, <laughs> just like a normal episode. And I promise I will throw in an indie or two, alright? So to get started, I wanted to chat with you about the brand new comic that just came out, Punchline Number 1, by James Tinian IV and Sam Johns. The art was done by Mirka Adolfo. I will say this story is surprising. It has some really amazing elements, one of them being the return of Harper Rowe and her brother Colin Rowe. Now we all know Harper Rowe is the newest of the Bat family, goes by the name of Bluebird. She never got much development, pretty much not hated, but just nobody cared. Like she fizzled out and died as soon as she entered the scene. And I think it's because there was a lot of little style over substance. She has wacky colored hair, a bunch of piercings, she's got a don't mess with me attitude, you know, all the like starter pack for my first OC. It's like they were trying just too hard to make her Gen Z. And then they threw in, you know, of course her brother, who I think was bullied for being gay, and that was why she got involved. And also one of the things that I'd forgotten was that Cassandra Kane, while being brainwashed, killed their mother. Well, <laughs> we had most of the Bat family involved during the Joker War, so it seemed right that we would have uh, Harper and Colin in this one. Now, Harper starts out at a hearing for Punchline with the infallible Leslie Tompkins. Leslie's given her an examination to see if she's fit to stand trial, and she says that she is. We also get a little bit of Punchline's backstory as she explains that her first interaction with the Joker was on a field trip. She claims to have been a normal child with good grades, but she went on a field trip to a news station that Joker had taken over. So he's killing people left and right, just anyone who is too scared to announce his hostage letter. All the adults are dead. And he grabs her and puts her in front of the camera and says, you're gonna read it. She stares at her crying classmates and she's about to read when, out of nowhere, Batman comes in, saves the day, punches the Joker, and a star is born, basically. She's very excited now about all of this, but we don't see that at the court scene. She's very humble, she's very, I'm a victim, and they're like, Leslie, can you explain this? Leslie's like, well, uh, maybe she has multiple personality disorder, I don't really know, but she seems coherent. I think that she could stand trial. Harper's a little in shock, and I have to admit, I do find the style really appealing, but it is extremely anime. Giant, big, shujo eyes, like these are anime girl eyes, and everybody has them. Sharp noses, pretty features. The backgrounds are really nice without being too showy. I think it's a really pleasant style of art. I think I've given Adolfo props in the past for his art. It's not overly detailed, but it's not overly simplified. 
and once again, extremely anime. I think it does Harper Row justice because it kind of makes her feel more empathetic, her expressions feel bigger, it's kind of got that Gotham Academy vibe. So if you liked Gotham Academy, like this art is kind of on that level. Plus it just has a bunch of different angles. Okay, I'm gonna stop talking about the art, but it's good. Harper is having a bit of a problem with her brother, isn't she always? Colin is at home, he's afraid to leave his home because of the Joker War, because there are still roving gangs, so she runs around at night being a protector, and he stays inside playing video games, eating pizza pockets, just kind of not having a healthy lifestyle. So in the midst of gaming, Colin is talking to a friend named Bluff, and they chat about Punchline Simps, her podcast, her video, everything. They can't get enough of her. Aside from being, well, middlingly attractive to all of these young men, she's created a sort of parasocial relationship with them. And somehow this podcast not only convinces people that she is innocent, but that she is a hero. So anyways, he's telling his sister, you know, judge not lest you be judged. And yeah, also accuses her of persecuting an innocent person. He won't listen to any more she says, he locks himself in his room, and now there is a weird sibling fight happening. Even though she really didn't do anything to him. <laughs> and she didn't really defend her side at all. She just kind of looks at him like she's being persecuted now. Harper gets a call from Leslie, who does not want her to hold her hand as Harper, but to watch the streets as Bluebird. And wouldn't you know it, uh, Mr. Bluff says, hey man, let's go hang out over at the courthouse. It's gonna be a good time. And this agoraphobe is like, yeah, stranger, you're more reliable than my sister. I'll go with you, even though your name is literally Bluff and you're probably catfishing me. So he gets through 52 episodes, ha ha, and she basically says, everyone, thank you for listening. She's at this point fully transformed into her punchline persona. She just says, I'm sorry guys, I never finished figuring out what he was laughing about. The mystery goes unsolved. Then she immediately goes off and murders a bunch of people. <laughs> just starts poisoning random people. So let me set the scene for you. Punchline has just poisoned a bunch of people, but they're all gagging and crying not laughing or smiling, and she gets really mad at one guy and starts torturing him, trying to get him to smile, and she gets frustrated and starts stabbing him. And then her hand is caught by Joker in a tuxedo. Joker spins her around. Maybe you could help me. Or maybe he says, maybe I could help you. And she points her knife at his chin, and now he has to reckon with her as a woman. And she says, maybe we can help each other. And then they kiss. What? <laughs> what in the Wattpad did I just read? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Tinian, what, what are you doing, man? <laughs> no. If I want to read OC Crack Ships with the Joker, I can find it for free. Do you know why it's free, Tinian? Do you know? It's because no one wants to pay for that. This this is the backstory that's gonna redeem your character to a bunch of people who call her a Harley Quinn ripoff? I'm... I'm broken by this. I've been telling everyone James Tinian IV is a good writer. But you see, this is the moment I take that away. I am not going to be just indiscriminately praising someone who makes me read this. I do not understand how on earth you could give me this. You know what? We have a lot to get through, so I shouldn't do this, but there is no one to stop me. I'm going to read you the quotes verbatim. I just turned off the podcast recording 
went to get my comic. I'm gonna read it for you, just this passage, alright? This is how messed up it is. So right after she's stabbing this guy, Joker, with this really sleazy, lusty look in his eyes, grabs her around the waist with one hand, and with the other, grabs her wrist that's holding the knife, and he's sniffing her hair, and he says, you don't have the formula quite right, and he whispers in her ear, and we see his tongue, and he says, I can help you make it better. And then she turns around and looks at him, and he's shocked. She's crazier than he is. And then she puts her knife up to his face and says, I think we can help each other. And then she kisses him. But like she's dipping him and she has the knife at his throat. So it gives off that Sid and Nancy vibe. And he's smiling. And I've seen the versions where Harley Quinn like manufactures false memories. And so I guess we're doing that with this character. But do we have to? Because this is awful. This is actually terrible and painful to read. So I just want you to know this was the moment when I was like, mm, the rest is a slog now because I don't want to continue. I wanted to throw this across the room and walk away. Okay, so we cut over to Leslie. Leslie's checking with Bluebird. We see that Colin is also there in the crowd. He's given a Joker mask, which he totally puts on like an idiot. And we also get this nice interaction between... <laughs> punchline who hacked into leslie's phone somehow just sitting there in her car hacking so she hacks into leslie's phone uh breaks up her call with bluebird to say you know thank you so much for not saying i'm crazy because uh, if you had i would be put in arkham and i wouldn't be able to do what i'm doing today and leslie's kind of warning her you know like this is not safe what you're doing i think that you're troubled i think that your message is wrong whatever she says also like i don't know why you would deny doing stuff when there are so many witnesses who say you you've done it and she that's when she kind of says, you know, I don't think the witnesses will be a problem. So we cut back to a bunch of dead people or dying people. There's a lot of like really uncomfortable gore in this. It's not over the top gore, but it's definitely sadistic. At the same time, Punchline, in full Punchline costume, goes in and she has this massive crowd just like chanting free Punchline, no crime, no time, all that jazz. Meanwhile, Colin is holding hands with his new friend as he glares up at his sister on a roof like, this is your fault. <laughs> and holds his mask more firmly over his face. And immediately we get the angry Harper Row face and to be continued in 2021. So that's basically the issue. It's uh, it's something. I mean, it, it was everything that I expected, honestly. The main thing that I was surprised about was that Harper Row was there. And I think I already knew that and I just forgot. So when I saw her again, I was like, who's the bubblegum haired girl with all the piercings in her face? Oh my gosh, that's that girl. So that was exciting. I'm glad to see her doing stuff. We didn't really get any further exploration of her character, so <laughs> once again, empty slate, Harper Rowe. Her personality is having a brother who sucks. I don't think it was particularly clever. I just don't believe it. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't think this person could manipulate anybody. We don't see one instance of manipulation that's even, like, persuasive, you know? There was also another part where she talks about uh, Joker's stupid scheme to trademark the fish, and I forgot that that was his plot, and I really wish they hadn't brought that up, because it doesn't fit with the super serious, 
look at all this death on every page, look at all these bodies, look at all these crying faces and the gore, look at this super serious tone, and also remember when the Joker tried to patent funny-faced fish, and she's trying to make it sound like it was like a really great idea, like, oh, he's so smart, he, he tried to make the city pay him for his genius, and then when they wouldn't do it, he killed them all off until they would, and it's like, that's one of the goofiest children's versions of Batman, you know? This is from the animated series. This is silly. And you're making it sound like it was sexy and it wasn't. It doesn't fit this. I'm sorry. Like, if you want us to forget that the Joker's a silly cornball Saturday morning villain, don't bring up the fish. At least don't bring up the origin. Make up a new origin, you know what I mean? But whatever. It's fine. Um, that happened. It is what it is, though. Um, it was very pretty to look at, and if you want to collect it for the covers, there are some really good ones. Now enough about villains, let's talk about heroes. Uh, Batman in Detective Comics 1030. Of course, it's written by our boy, Peter J. Tomasi, and it's drawn by Bilquist Evely. And I'm not sure if this is an affectation of Bilquist, but I'm pretty sure it might be the colorist, Matt Lopez. Someone's putting uh, an old-timey filter on everything to make it look kind of grainy. He's one of those. So, if you're like me and you have been following along with Tinian's Batman, then you know in Gotham City right now there is a new criminal and his name is the Ghostmaker. And he's going after all the vigilantes, he's hunting people down because he's the true hero that Gotham needs right now. Tomasi has kind of a similar idea. There's been an anti-vigilante appearing in town. Um, he won't go by any name. He says, I am you and you are me because he wears like a mirror suit. So he's going for sort of a Rorschach thing, but it's a bit more pretentious. He faces the crowds and he says, we don't need masks. We need to hunt the masks because if we... <laughs> If we kill the heroes, we kill the villains. I think it's just like, you want to fight someone, but you want to fight someone who won't, like, hurt you, you know? Um, these guys are going after masks, but they're going after people with a code only. <laughs> so he shows a bunch of masks. He's like, yeah, let's go get these guys. And it's all Batfam. So he wants to go... I mean, he included Red Hood. I don't like his chances there, but everyone else, go for it, you know? But really, he's not even putting himself on the line. He's all about getting other people to do his dirty work. Which, you know, whatever. He's the hero Gotham needs right now. We're doing that ad nauseum. And we get some more OCs that show up onto the scene. One of them being Officer Nakano, a former cop who's running for mayor. In the last issue, he was holding a fundraiser with a bunch of Gotham's elite on a yacht. Nightwing showed up to save the day, and Damien broke into his father's study to steal the black book. If you remember from Teen Titans, Batman and Damien have had a falling out because Damien was keeping a prison full of villains to experiment on, a la Joseph Mengele. And rather than being like, wow, war crimes from my son, Batman's like, you can't do this. And Robin throws a tantrum, rips the R off his chest and says, well, I'm off. This is kind of a oversimplification, but basically what happened and we need to just address that Tomasi freaking loves Damien. So, of course, he gets to write him in this. Um, Damien shows up, he steals Batman's black book of cases, and he runs away with it. So now you're caught up, you know the key players. I just, I'm gonna go on a rant pretty soon, 
I just want to get you ready, okay? Here's where it goes. We start off with a nightmare from Officer Nakano, who's dreaming about his friend dying. Batman comes from the flames to taunt him, holding his eye in his hand, and basically just telling him what a terrible person he is. This man, who has a bunch of masks hanging over his bed, is very anti-vigilante, but he just starts, like, losing his mind and his pregnant wife calms him down she says you know what you're stressed out let's not do this this mayor run thing and he's like no 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 i'm doing this for our unborn son we need to have a better gotham for him to grow up in so (laughs) i feel like he's gonna die by the end of this like that seems to be the speech you give just before you die so that batman can have someone to feel bad about i could be cynical but you know what i'm usually right so batman is having his own little angst fest and I don't understand Tomasi or why he hates Batman so much. Also, this artist hates Batman, and I will tell you why in a minute. So Batman's thinking about his son. He's, uh, waxing a little poetic. I want to read you a piece of it. It all started with this. Robin ripped the symbol off his chest like it was burning a hole in him, said he would never wear it again. Relief and determination etched on his face. The R was a burden. The R was an anchor. The R was holding him back, and without hesitation, he turned and walked away. His days of being Robin were over. And then he just goes on and on and on and on. He, like, basically catches the audience up. He's like, yeah, he freaking stole my casebook. I just got it back from Joker, and then he took it. So he's doing all this, like, crazy, like, uh, flashbacks to when he got beaten up, pulverized by his son in Teen Titans Annual Number 2, according to editor Paul. But yeah, he's just like staring at the robin crest in his hand and it keeps cutting back to a brighter image of little Damien beating the hell out of him. Just punching him in the face, the stomach, all that stuff as the current Batman flies through the city and he... How do I describe these poses to you? He lands on a rooftop with his arms outstretched behind him like a child doing a Naruto run. He keeps his little legs together as he floats gracefully through the city on his um, bat swing. (laughs) I forgot the word. Grappling hook. As he floats through the city on his grappling hook, he lands with his legs crossed like he has to go to the bathroom and he flashes back to a memory of his son kicking him in the face and he flies back with his legs parted like he's, I don't know, gonna do the splits, like a comedy fall. He's like drawn without any muscles. In the modern day, as we cut back to now, he's jumping rooftops with like little, little skinny legs. He, he does a graceful little flip and, once again, with his feet together, lands pointy-toed onto the ground and then falls down crouched, once again, with his arms behind him in a narrow-toe run pose. I mean, like, I might be overcritical, but I just thought those were a lot of really, um, rude poses. Mostly the one where he gets knocked out. So, he meets up with the gang, the Bat fam. They're on a roof, just chillin'. They have, like, a moment where they talk about all these people have been running into the anti-vigilante crowd. They're all worrying about, oh no, the new OC's gonna unmask us and we're gonna be so scared. We gotta do something about our public image. Batman blames Nakano, basically. But then they start talking about Robin, you know, Batman's worried about him, nobody's seen him. And he just kind of pouts. He just looks down with his chapped lips and his very skinny form. Like, the last issue, he was drawn by somebody else and he had more muscles. But he had big, big eyes with long eyelashes. In this one, he's less feminine, but he's more like, like a man who just got out of a coma. Like, he's very emaciated. He's got, like, a beard. 
he always looks like he's pouting, like he's on the verge of tears. And, uh, oh yeah, so they ask him, like, why are we here, Bats? What did you want us for? And he goes, well, I didn't call this meeting. Uh, Nightwing called this meeting. Nightwing's like, no, I didn't. You did. And they're like, oh no, who called this meeting? And then a bunch of civilians start rushing into the building. Like, get him! Let's go beat up Batman! <laughs> And they all jump off the roof as the mirror guy runs out yelling, No more bats! (laughs) It was just... So then in the cold file room at the GCPD, there's Damien hanging upside down, doing his Damien thing. He cracks open a case file on Bruce Wayne, and the title of it says, Targeted Crime Victims. And there's a 13-year-old Bruce Wayne and a 35-year-old Alfred. Alfred was an MI6. He retired. If I remember correctly, it's possible that uh, this is different, but I'm pretty sure in every version I've seen Alfred, he is ex-military. Bruce lost his parents when he was like eight. (sighs) Alfred was already a butler by then. So let's see, that's five years before, which means that he would have been 30 years old. A 30-year-old retired MI6 operative. That means he became a butler sometime in his 20s as a retiree. Like, dude, I guess Alfred's a prodigy. Anyways, that's the timeline we're given, and it it made me laugh. (laughs) Just, baby butler Alfred, like, all right, in his little 20s. I give up. It's fine. Whatever. I'm gonna call him baby butler from now on. So Damien's looking at a photo where I guess Alfred is being taken away in an ambulance and there's Bruce in his uh, karate outfit. It looks like they were recovering from some kind of car accident. Damien takes special note of the names on this document. Gus Lolos, Catherine Podolsky, Greg Brubaker, Ed Rucka. Like, are you kidding me right now? That's like not even a homage if you do that. It just pulls you right out of the story. Come off of it. So after this revelation, Damien runs off to go confront one of the detectives, and that's the end of the story. Tomasi likes to swivel wildly from one extreme to the other with Batman, and in this one, he's sort of defeated, he's very weak, and the way he's drawn is very unnatural and and strange. And I don't want to be mean to the artist, because I don't really know this artist, but I mean, like, why are his knees always crossed? What's that about? I wouldn't even like it if a woman was doing that, and like, our knees do that more easily. I mean, it would even be kind of weird to see on Spider-Man. Like, Spider-Man's pretty slight, and he does- no, he doesn't. He doesn't put his knees together that often, you know? It just looks strange, and I never realized not only does it look strange when your knees are together, but like when your knees are crossed in front of each other. It's just odd. Sorry, that was just a little pet peeve of mine I didn't even know I had. So, yeah, aside from the way that Batman was drawn, I don't know, the story so far is kind kind of familiar to Mossy. Detective Comics 1030 was not good. And (laughs) punchline number one was very not good. I'm sorry, I'm still thinking about that. (laughs) That memorial, what were they thinking? (laughs) Tinian, you live in Brooklyn. You cannot think that any city, in response to a terrorist attack, would sell state-sanctioned merch of the weapons of the attack. That's not how this works. We can do without this story. So, punchline one, absolute miss for me. I think the moral of the story is, read more indies, kids. Read indies. 
I definitely saw some beautiful covers this week. There's one cover by The Marked, number nine. It was created by writer and artist Brian Haberlin and artist Gerard Van Dyke. But I gotta tell you, these covers are breathtaking. So the series is about a group of people called The Marked. Call them witches, wizards, X-Men wannabes. <laughs> the series starts with a girl named Saskia who wants to go to art school. She goes to art school, but to a very exclusive one she saw in an ad, and it was some subliminal thing that only appeals to magic users. So she gets marked, which is basically a tattoo that reveals your Patronus, and she stays with the marked. Most of them are artists, um, they all are magic users, they all have special symbols. One of them gets a little too crazy and tries to mix science with magic to disastrous results. I won't go into the whole series, it's long, but it's basically the adventures of this group and, you know, the typical uh, we as a team have different but similar powers and we have to protect ourselves from the outside world, yada yada. There's some magic, there's some creatures, there's some fighting. The art style, it looks like someone got some models and threw them into Poser. There's something unnatural and uncanny valley about all of them. The layout and camera angles are interesting, as they usually are when you have a 3D model to work from, but it really does just look like they were traced over some not very good 3D models. In fact, there's one point where she's lying down and it just kind of looks like the rest pose for a 3D model when their legs are slightly bent and they're just kind of hovering. It was just wrong. Anyways, that's the series. Some of the dialogue gets kind of cringy later on. Like, it starts out pretty decent, but it seems like it kind of gets rushed or lazy a little bit later. Kind of a three out of five stars for me, but I still think you should check it out. It's a fresh take on a familiar trope, and I just really love creator-owned work. I was telling Joe just today, actually, I feel like every Marvel story I read lately is created in a boardroom based on market trends, and every DC comic feels like it was made in a boardroom with a bunch of executives on shrooms. So, creator-owned comics get bonus points. It is produced by Image, which means that the creators took all the risk on themselves. So, kudos to you guys. You did it. You're living the dream. In the same vein, I wanted to touch on one other comic. This one isn't creator-owned. It's produced by Dark Horse. The original series came out in June 2013. It was written by Gerard Way and Sean Simon, and the art was by the incredible Becky Cloonan. It ended in 2014, I believe, and went by the name of The True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys. So as of last month, we got a reboot, The True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys National Anthem. This batch is written by Sean Simon and Gerard Way, and the artist is Leonardo Romero. We're on issue two, and it seems to be a monthly publication. So far, it's pretty exciting. It's similar to The Marked in that it is about a group, but in this one, we get to follow a little bit more closely to Mike Milligram, who's bulletproof. It also is unnervingly similar to The Umbrella Academy. The story centers around a group of kids with special abilities who were raised to be monster exterminators by machines. <laughs> It also parallels Umbrella Academy in that a teammate dies early into the series and the rest are left to cope with their loss. The world is very different though. It's something similar to the horror film They Live, where only the people with the sight can see the reality destroying monsters. And the group gets caught and 
programmed into a matrix-like situation where their TVs are controlling them and a pharmaceutical company is keeping everyone sort of brainwashed. They have to escape the brainwashing, they have to fight rival gangs of weirdos. It's very flamboyant, it seems very fun, it's very much a sugar rush. So if you're into that kind of stuff, definitely check out The True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys, National Anthem. I think it's fun, it's a little dizzying for me. <laughs> I know, I'm complaining about everything. I really do like it. I love wacky premises. I want to see really exciting new ideas, and this isn't really new in any way. It's just recycling a bunch of different concepts, smashing them together, putting on a bunch of bright colors, and calling it a day, which is fine. We've had two issues, and honestly, each of the characters is nothing but a trope. It's gonna sound bad to say, but I felt the same way about Umbrella Academy. <laughs> Like, each of the characters has, like, the standard checklist of traits. They are very stylized, and this one kind of has that same vibe. Um, but yeah, I just think it's a really fun one to check out. Definitely give yourself a palate cleanser. This is Sherbert. I would say the marked is toast with marmalade, but you know what? It's not the same McDonald's or Burger King choices we seem to have every single week. This is the rant I do every week that Joe is kind enough to edit out but I am becoming so exhausted with the mainstream comics right now. It's just, it's tiresome. It's plodding, it's predictable, and it's boring. But I keep reading it anyways, because that's the fandom lifestyle. If you would like to suffer with me in fandom hell, here are some of the comics that came out this week. DC once again gave us some Black Label American Vampire 1976, number two. We have Dark Knight's Death Metal, Infinite Hours, Extreme, number one. Joe read it. He went into a fugue state while trying to explain it. I think his brain broke. He hated it. He hated it a lot. The Flash, number 765, The Green Lantern, season 2, number 9, Hawkman, number 29, which I believe is the last one, and I heard it's a doozy. I did not read it, because obviously I'm allergic to good quality writing. Also, Injustice, year 0, number 10, Superman, Man of Tomorrow, number 19, Wonder Woman, Agent of Peace, number 16. All three of those came out digitally, so you could read those ones right now, or you could join me at the comic shop to get Superman, number 27, or Wonder Woman, number 766, both of which also are just huge disappointments right now. Alright, Marvel. What came out this week? The Amazing Spider-Man number 52, The Amazing Spider-Man number 52 LR, Champions number 2, Excalibur number 14, Iron Man number 3, The Magnificent Ms. Marvel number 16, Marauders number 15, Marvel Zombies Resurrection number 4, Savage Avengers number 14, Star Wars Darth Vader number 7, Strange Academy number 5, and the first issue of Taskmaster. Also, Warhammer for... I say we're hamburger. <laughs> Sorry, Warhammer. <clears throat> Warhammer 40,000, Marnius Calgar, number two. Wolverine, number seven. Yeah, I'm gonna leave that in. Alright, so let's talk about my favorite comics because, like, I never get to. Here's what I do when I go to the comic shop. I look at artists who do the covers and I collect them like little art pieces for my mini gallery. 
It's stupid, but it's something I enjoy, so I just do it. Also, I'm not alone. A lot of collectors just collect things for the covers. Sorry, I have to constantly explain this to my co-hosts because they hate me for doing this. Both of them are writers. <laughs> so here are some cool covers I saw this week. The Legacy of Mandrake the Magician put out by Red 5. Marauders number 15, the Dolly variant. Obviously Wonder Woman 766, which I still am buying just for the Middleton variants. There's also a really good Power Rangers number one. The cover was by Scalera. Amazing Spider-Man number 52 had this insane Verege Spider-Man variant. Verege, V-E-R-E-G-G-E. There, I did it justice. And no matter how much I despise punchline number one, there were a couple really good variants for it. If you managed to get your hands on a Frank Cho variant, congratulations. You can see he's been using his trademark ballpoint pen. There also was a really nice cover by Yasmin Putri, who is one of my absolute favorite colorists of all time. Now for next week, DC is going to release Aquaman number 65, Batman 103, Catwoman number 27, Dark Knight's Death Metal number 5, Dollar Comics The Sandman number 23, Joker Harley Criminal Sanity number 6 of 8, Justice League number 57, Looney Tunes number 257, Nightwing number 76, Rorschach number 2 of 12, and Teen Titans number 47. From Marvel, we're going to get The Amazing Spider-Man number 53, cover A is going to be a Patrick Gleason cover, Avengers number 36, Avengers Marvel Snapshot number 1, Cable number 6, Captain America number 25 is going to have some good variants with Scotty Young or Alex Ross. We also get another one by Jeffrey Varege. I will learn his name, I promise. His is going to be a Native American Heritage Tribute variant. We get a Fantastic Four number 26 with a Mark Brooks cover, Hellions number 6 with an awesome Inhyuk Lee cover, Immortal Hulk number 40 with Alex Ross cover again, also another Jeffrey Varege Hulk Native American Heritage tribute variant. Tarian Clark is going to do a She-Hulk Phoenix variant, and Scotty Young is going to do a spoiler variant. We're also going to get Juggernaut number 3 of 5, Marvel's Voices, Indigenous Voices number 1. Cover A is Jim Terry, cover B is Jeffrey Varege, Danny Moonstar, Native American Heritage Tribute variant. The cover C will be my favorite, David Mack, amazing watercolorist. Uh, cover D will be Afua Richardson, Spider-Man number 6, and there's going to be a Todd Knock cover variant. Star Wars Bounty Hunter number 7, Swordmaster number 12, Symbiote Spider-Man Keenan Black number 1. Of course, we will get a True Believers Keenan Black Monster World number 1 so that we can revisit some lore. We get Venom number 30, Widowmakers Red Guardian and Yelena Belova number 1. Some covers by Mike McCone, Inhyuk Lee, Jung Lee, Chris Samney, and we get another one from Jeffrey Varega. I feel like I've pronounced every single name wrong. We also get an X-Force number 14. Before I close this out, I also wanted to bring attention to a new image comic that's coming out called Homesick Pilots by Dan Waters and Casper Wingard. Basically, it's a horror series, which is kind of like The Haunting of Hill House. The synopsis is, in the summer of 1994, a haunted house walks across California. Inside is Ami, lead singer of a high school punk band who's been missing for weeks. How did she get there, and what do these ghosts want? 
Expect three chord songs and big bloody action in forthcoming Homesick Pilots. That one is coming out in December. It's definitely new. It's got rave reviews from other artists and writers in the industry, so it might be something to keep on your radar, especially if you're like me and you love horror. So that's all I've got for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Court of Owlets. My DMs are open. You can send us any reviews that you want to hear. Honestly, if you have some good comics, please send them my way. I need an intervention. And as always, you can hear our latest podcast episodes by subscribing on Anchor, Apple, Google, Spotify, or anywhere else you want to listen to your podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I promise we'll be back soon. And then Joe can edit out my rants. Bye.